It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Welcome to Nature's Take. This is the show where we dive deep into the stories that matter in science. In each episode, we pull in some of nature's finest, present them with a topic, and see where the discussion leads us. In this episode, we're talking Twitter. This social media platform has, over the decades, become indispensable to many scientists. It's a place to share findings, engage the public, it's a source of data, and is given a voice to people who might otherwise be excluded. It's not all roses, though. Twitter has also helped foster the spread of misinformation, abuse, and harassment. And in recent months, it's fair to say that Twitter has been going through a bit of a tumultuous time. Since Elon Musk took over the platform, many Twitter employees have been laid off, there have been all sorts of malfunctions on the site, and some potential policy changes have concerned scientists. To discuss the fallout of this as it pertains to science, I'm joined today by three very knowledgeable guests from across nature. First up, we've got Anne-Marie Conlon, Chief Editor, Audience and Engagement. Hi, I'm Anne-Marie. I manage the At Nature Twitter feed. Next, Mary Elizabeth Sutherland, Senior Manuscript Editor for Cognitive Neuroscience, Behavioural and Social Science. Hi, I'm delighted to be here. As Nick said, I'm the Manuscript Editor for most of the papers that have to do with people actually doing things at nature. And Michael White, Senior Manuscript Editor for Climate Science. I handle anything to do with atmospheric sciences, oceanography, and uh, cryosphere. And I've been an intermittently heavy Twitter user to being currently almost a non-Twitter user. So just to start us off in this discussion, maybe it's useful to talk about how each of you actually interact with Twitter. Anne-Marie, why don't you start seeing as your nature's Twitter person? So um, part of my role is to manage the nature social media feeds, and that includes our Twitter feed, which has a few million followers. In a personal capacity, I use Twitter um, compulsively because I have my own networks. You might notice from my accent that I'm Irish, so I have like Irish Twitter, I have media Twitter, I have just random nerd things Twitter. <laughs> and yeah, it's a way it's a way of connecting with people outside of my own small circle in so I yeah, I use Twitter an awful lot. <laughs> I think I've used Twitter for a couple of main reasons. One of them is to find uh, scientists who are also interested in baking. That's been a big Twitter outreach effort on my part, but I like more substantially, I think what I've tried to do is to take what I've learned from editing for the past 15 years and to make that available to the community in a way that might be useful. So you know, after you see thousands of papers going through a review, you kind of get a feeling for what reviewers object to. So I've tried to have long threads that are sort of highlighting the things that I think would maximize a paper's chance of getting through review. And then I've tried to promote content in nature that I think 
might not have been immediately seen by the community. So I tweeted extensively about our recent racism and science special issue. So it's been kind of more for me, like a, like a service role, trying to facilitate the community's interaction with nature and trying to bring some of our higher level thematic content back to the community that I work with. So I feel like I am Mike in training. I, <laughs> I'm basically my role was created to increase our content in the behavioral and social sciences and in cognitive neuroscience. So one of the ways that I've been using Twitter a lot is for outreach. I've been engaged in just letting people know, you know, saying, hey, great paper, we're interested in this, or tweeting things that I've seen published elsewhere saying, this is a great paper, you know, consider, and then tagging the people and say, you know, consider submitting this type of research to nature. So that's my personal use of it. And then as the editor in the behavioral and social sciences, I see a lot of papers that are based on Twitter data. So a lot of questions about polarization, about misinformation, about the spread of information, you name it. Everybody talks about things on Twitter. So it's been a great source of data just in the research that I read on a daily basis. So you all clearly have your uses for Twitter and lots of scientists do as well. But not every scientist is on Twitter so I'm interested in whether you think it is actually that important as a tool. I mean, I think it can be a really important tool for a wide variety of people. Like in my domain right now, there's a ice drilling campaign to get ancient ice from Antarctica. And that drilling team has been posting to, you know, to not great numbers of views, but it's been really fascinating to kind of just watch their progress and watching things break down in the field and the repairs that are going on. So I love it for that kind of programmatic update in particular. It's kind of where the conversation is for a lot of scientists, like the same as a lot of individuals use it for their own communities with work or hobbies. There's a community, a strong community of working scientists that follow nature and engage with nature. And that I see every day talking to each other, talking to us just about what's going on in their industries and seeing what's happening in different pockets of science that they might not know about if it weren't for seeing other communities on Twitter. I also feel like it's become a way to get out feelings about mental health in academia. And I feel like when I left academia back in 2008 to come to nature, I was sort of viewed as being completely insane for leaving a tenured job. Mm -hmm. but, but now I feel like it's happening just routinely and that people are openly talking about their mental health struggles on Twitter and why they've left to go to industry or to, in my area, you know, a huge universe of climate startups. I think that's been a really positive development. Well, Mike, I'm quite interested as well. You said you were a heavy user of Twitter, and now you're not so much. So what sort of changed for you? I mean, I think after the change in ownership, huge numbers of people in my area left Twitter to go to Mastodon, and the feed changed enormously. So I tend to get things showing up in my feed from just a few people repeatedly and all the people I used to follow and be interested in or large numbers of them are gone. And then just the junk ads that are polluting my feed have become kind of epidemic. So it's become much less interesting and much less sort of science focused in my area and more like a marketing tool for things I don't care about. The ads and the replies is a new feature that is definitely frustrating to a lot of users from what I've seen and frustrates me. If you're just normally you would have an ad in your feed, but now you get it in a reply to a tweet. So it could be like a person talking about serious mental health issue and then ad for something, non, you know, yeah, completely physical and silly, just interrupting the kind of serious tone or that's one thing that has started to bother me as well. You know, Mary Elizabeth, you were talking about the use of Twitter for uh, research purposes. And one thing I've always wondered about, like I've heard talks where people are using Twitter to 
understand people's attitudes about extreme weather or heat waves or things like this. And I know that probably historically that's been done through like interviews and surveys in your work. I mean, do you see that you get really radically different answers from Twitter than you would from more traditional social science data gathering approaches? That's a really great question. You often don't get very radically different answers if you're looking at a question that has been asked before. But what you do get is you get the ability to ask bigger and different questions than you could have asked in the same way. Because one of the problems that comes with a survey in a way is if, let's say, you know, I come to you and I say, I'm just going to pick a university. There's no affiliation between nature and this. And I just say, hey, you know, (laughs) I'm Mary Elizabeth Sutherland. I'm a tenured professor at Columbia University in New York City. And I want to know what you think about this. There's some response bias that comes in, right? And so people do do survey designs that take this into account, but it's difficult. What's really cool about Twitter is people are just choosing to share this information, right? People are like, this is what I think. There is nobody (laughs) prompting me. This is just my own behavior. So in a way, you're collecting spontaneous behavior and you can get to different populations. Because as we were saying, the nice thing about Twitter is that anybody can join. And so what's been great in my field is that I've started seeing not just English language analyses of Twitter data, but also in other languages. So you can say, okay, let's go look at something else. You know, does this work in a different language? And you get these really cool converging or not findings across different cultures that are just pure spontaneous behavior, which I think is really valuable. So that's another topic, right? The upcoming policies that we're not sure for how accessible those data will be is definitely something that is difficult for my community because it really has been such a resource. So this is in reference to potential policy changes because it's still unclear exactly what's happening here where scientists may have to pay a hundred dollars a month maybe more to access all of this data people might have actually heard about this this is something called twitter's application programming interface or its api and that's how people can access this data if this were to happen do we have a sense of what the impact will be you've mentioned how useful this is as a way to get the sort of sense of what people are thinking If this was to change, how would scientists react? I mean, everyone is worried about it. I know a lot of the authors I work with have just been trying to get as much data as they can in advance because we don't know what the policy is. And it's really difficult if that's your research, that's your data source. And somebody says, access to this may or may not change in a way that you can or cannot afford, right? It's a great degree of uncertainty, but I think that it would be very damaging if it made it difficult for many people to access it. Because something that's cool about these data is that you can, well, they were accessible, so you could address interesting research questions without a huge budget. So it sort of equalized things a bit more right across the the haves and haves nots. So it just sort of polarizing is the wrong word, but it increases the disparity. Well, I mean, it kind of will foster helicopter science remotely, essentially, where you'll have people who will be able to do research on parts of the world that can't afford to pay for the access, but who aren't actually living there. Like in my, in my area, I've always imagined that a really interesting way to use Twitter data would be for extreme weather events and trying to understand how communication and response efforts are actually 
being taken up by the people who are affected, which could be measured by Twitter data. But in many parts of the world where these extreme events are going to have the biggest impact, few people there will be able to pay for access, I imagine. What worries me, and this is full speculation, but then once you start getting this pay for access for the data, is it also going to be, you know, paying for the different things that you can do? And is that also then going to skew who is on the platform? I mean, already, Mike, you've talked about Elon's take over has skewed who from your community is still on Twitter. And I'm sure the same is true for all of our different communities. So I feel like that is also changing, right? If you look at the data, you say, okay, people have just joined. But then if there's a major exogenous event, like somebody taking over, and then you have people's own decisions of what to do, that also impacts the data. And one thing this is sort of like associated with that we've talked about sort of inequality is Twitter has been sort of a way for many people to have a voice who wouldn't have a voice and have sort of engagement with their scientific peers when they may find it difficult. Maybe they're a PhD student, maybe they're from certain communities that have been overlooked in the past. So do you think, and you know, Mikey, you've touched on this a little bit with sort of changes to Twitter, we're going to see people sort of losing the voice that they've fought so hard to gain on this platform? I think it's certainly possible. I think after George Floyd and related social movements, there were groups on Twitter that came up in my area like Black and Geoscience. There are just strikingly few Black geoscientists in tenure track positions. And so Black and Geoscience was, a, I think, a great group that sort of self-organized. And it led me to discover many people I thought were not at all on my radar. And then there's Geo-Latinas, for example, so groups that are less represented in geosciences have found Twitter to be, I think, a place to both kind of collect people within those communities and also to raise the visibility of those scientists. Well, anecdotally, from my being very online, (laughs) it does feel like some people have left Twitter because they felt like the environment created by Musk's takeover was more hostile to them than it had been previously. I think actually it's not just anecdotal. There was some studies in the months following the takeover that said that hate speech and spam and things had increased like a significant percentage more hate speech against marginalized groups of people. And obviously we can tell uh, Elon Musk's views on all of this. He's been very vocal on it. But then there's a lot of people definitely in the communities that I follow and in nature's communities that don't agree with that. So people are leaving Twitter and people that we want to hear from are leaving Twitter. But at the same time, not as many people have left as as was expected by the kerfuffle when the takeover happened. Um, And I know Mike was talking about Mastodon. The move to Mastodon felt like everyone was leaving all of a sudden. But now, using Twitter every day as I do, I I still see our community as a very vibrant place with full of discussion and the science community. And even though a lot of people will say, I'm on Mastodon, they're still engaging. So... I don't know, it's hard to say exactly what the impact will be, who's been lost and who remains, you know, but I suppose time will tell. I've had researchers describe it to me as a virtual conference in a way. So, you know, when you go to a conference, you're exposed to things that you are interested in, but also a lot of things that you didn't know because, you know, anybody from that area who comes is there. And also you're exposed to all of the things, right? It's not just a paper that somebody's written. It's also potentially a resource. So somebody will say, oh, cool, look, look at this cool new technique, you know, 
that can be used for this. So you start understanding what different techniques can be. You can connect with people. You have the potential for jobs to come up. You can ask people questions, right? Polls like, hey, what would you do in this situation? So it's just there's a it makes it really easy for people, I think, to connect one with people that they might not know that are within their network to share information and to share information more than just, you know, a publishing table of contents, because you can understand sort of you can get the pulse of the field much more easily. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And I just feel like I myself don't use Mastodon, but it seems like there just isn't another really equivalent way of doing this kind of all of these things, right? LinkedIn is like a professional network, but it doesn't give you all of the other things. There just isn't another platform that appears to have this easy virtual conference style, right? Mm -hmm. So I feel like though people may be against it in some way, at least I see as well that lots of people are still there because there's just, this is just, there's so much to gain from it. (laughs) Another thing I wanted to sort of touch on as well that we've kind of mentioned, I mean, some scientists have left Twitter, but it has been a really useful place to share information. But it's also been a place for a lot of disinformation too and a lot of the employees at twitter who are responsible for dealing with that sort of content and moderating it are now gone so what do you think is going to happen with the sort of rise of mis and disinformation that's a tough question I can, yeah it's gonna get worse <laughs> but I, my my hope is that ai is potentially going to be able to help right i mean the other thing that we have on the rise is is large language models right with the i guess the most popularized is chat gpt but the ability of ai algorithms to do things that humans could do but very quickly right so to sift through information and flag like yes and no right does this fit with what we know or what what other information is there now there's of course a lot of room for things to go wrong but i'm hoping that there's a way to start integrating some of these large language models into these online forums to hopefully give some indication as to whether or not something would be true or not or some prompt i i agree with you on the potential but let, let me just give you like a couple of examples in climate science so sort of climate denialism has always been active on twitter so for example, climate variability is a normal part of climate. Or you could say that most of the greenhouse effect comes from water vapor, not carbon dioxide. Both of which are true, but both of which are absolutely not the main story that we're talking about now. So like, how would AI, I don't know how AI would deal with that because they're not factually incorrect. And there's nuance that AI would miss. They're only as good as the information they're fed. So if they're scrolling the, you know, um, a language database or a fact database for facts, like Michael said, they could pull out the wrong fact and there's too much room for nuance and misinterpretation, I think. But I hope you're right, Mary, I'd love that. I would, but my, my kind of, my thinking is always just that, and this is my like journalism hat on, is that like media literacy is the kind of biggest casualty of, <laughs> of the internet. And this is what perpetuates a lot of misinformation online because people just don't, check their facts at all or look look at what a reputable source is and like as someone who is promoting content from a trusted publisher i get so frustrated when i see someone just citing a fact that sounds like it could be good and then in a few clicks i go no this is total nonsense i feel like there's like a multi-pronged attack against misinformation and one of it is media literacy but that has to work in conjunction with 
some type of moderation of content online. We published a paper March 2021 showing how shifting people actually using Twitter, um, <laughs> using Twitter as a field <laughs> experiment. Speaking of things that one can do with Twitter, showing that shifting people's attention to accuracy can actually reduce the spread of misinformation, which is really nice. So that's that's actually another good point. So Twitter is also used not just for collecting observational data, but you can also do these types of studies interacting with users and see if a prompt makes a difference. And it does. When you get people to actually think about the accuracy, then they don't just share willy-nilly. And in the context of the rise of misinformation and disinformation on the platform, is it maybe not a requirement, but a good thing for scientists to be there to sort of combat this misinformation? I mean, I think it's really important for, for nature as a publication to be a voice for reason and science on the internet. And that's my whole job, basically. And um, on Twitter, we wrote a lot about COVID at the very start of the pandemic. And we had incredible traffic to our articles because people were desperate for information from a trustworthy source. And nature, because it's a known trustworthy source, people could go to us to get that. And then part of that is sharing that content on Twitter and then also having that content reshared by other scientists or us addressing things that scientists are asking on Twitter. I think it's important from that point of view. If we all left all of the scientists, we'd be worried what would happen to the people who remain who aren't as informed or wouldn't get their information from a trustworthy source. I mean, I was drawn to career in editorial rather than research because I really feel that it's important to communicate science as best as possible. And that's something that you can definitely do as a researcher, but it's really great to be able to shape a broader sense of that as an editor. And so it feels like, you know, that's part of my my own personal mission statement in what I do is having as accurate a scientific record as possible and transmitting that to as many people in the world as possible, right? Doing as much as I can to help good science get out into the world and be used properly in the decision making. By properly, I just mean being used with full understanding. I, I think those are all great points, Mary Elizabeth. And I think that I totally agree with and Marie, in the sense that like institutions, I feel, have a larger responsibility than individual scientists, because for individual scientists, I mean, in my area in climate, trying to beat back the tide of misinformation would be a full time job. So it's just orders of magnitude more work to combat misinformation than it is to spread information and to expect that there's going to be like a responsibility of individual scientists to engage on Twitter to fight against that, I think is, is fairly unrealistic. I think if there are people who want to do that, and there certainly are people who want to do that. That's fantastic, and they should be supported. But I think it's it's probably more appropriate to view institutions like nature as a tool for doing that. Mm. And so what do you feel is nature's role in this space? Should we be doing more to combat misinformation? I mean, it's always going to be a question of, of resourcing, right? So if you have to have more people like Anne-Marie or Anne-Marie's division who have the necessary domain knowledge and maybe the ability to interface with the nature editors who handle those papers to try and, and push back on misinformation. So to be, you know, it's like a fairly big expansion of, of our effort to have that sort of tracking down misinformation about our specific work or work within the field. So I think in principle, yes, in practice, it's a fairly big ask. Yeah, we have almost 2.5 million followers on Twitter and that's every person that shares something from us, it gets seen by hundreds of thousands or who knows how many other people. So you just can't catch every single thing. 
from a compound point of view, we're very aware of our role of making sure that nothing that we put out there could be misinterpreted. So we're very careful on our headlines and the pictures and everything that we use that will go on Twitter to make sure that it's not going to be easily, like, for example, if we're ever writing about vaccines, we're very careful that the headline is not something that a vaccine denier or someone that thinks vaccines don't work could misconstrue and re-promote to promote their agenda because we want the facts to stand on their own. So we're very careful in that area. So that's, in my mind, nature's role on Twitter. And so I'm going to end with a sort of broad question for you. Do you think that science as an institution needs like an open platform such as Twitter in order to operate well? I do. I, I'm just going to give you an, an example that's been happening over the, maybe the past decade, which is discussions about academic misbehavior. So it's happened a lot in climate science, but in the past year, there's been this eruption of discussion in economics. So economics is a field that's historically been dominated by, by men, and it's been viewed as being hostile to uh, women. And so there have been a lot of you know, issues that have been discussed through Title IX or through university human resources departments that have gone from the perspective of many women in economics nowhere. And so, like fairly recently, a very public campaign began on Twitter naming individual male economists who were accused of inappropriate behavior in many ways. And it just opened up this gigantic storm of controversy about the appropriateness of doing this, the consequences they might face. And so I, I think that, you know, Twitter is a way to try to make academia more like what it should be. And, and I'm not saying that these accusations are going to be borne out in any way or particularly, but it's it's an important way of having this discussion. You know, people have been removed in academia in my area because of discussions that were initially disclosed on Twitter. So I think for that one particular reason, it's something like this is really critical and wasn't being accomplished through traditional academic enforcement mechanisms. I think we're human and we need to communicate. I mean, that's that's what we're doing here in this podcast. And, and that's what so much of our lives are about. And with the research, especially all of our authors, all of the people we engage with, they devote their lives to this particular subject and they get so deep and so into it. And it's so hard then to communicate with everybody else, you know, unless you live with somebody who does the same thing you're not able to. And so the ability to have a platform where you can continually communicate about the things that you spend your day doing, I think is also very valuable. I know that you can do that, you know, within a department and not, but this idea to be able to connect to people who really understand what you're doing, share your excitement for it, I think is also just really good for our mental well-being as a society and for researchers. So not just speaking about mental health, which is really important, but that it actually helps scientists own satisfaction and purpose to be able to share with people who really understand, which can be hard when you're such an expert and the other expert, you know, is a continent over. I think from a science journalism point of view, Twitter is quite, I don't know if I'd say essential, but ex extremely useful because in that conference, town square kind of capacity, it's what people are talking about. And a journalist's job is to kind of know what people are talking about and to give answers to the questions people are asking. So it's part of, here's what the scientists I talked to today, my contacts are saying, here's what's happening on the news, here's what's happening on Twitter, here's what's happening. It's one strong source that is many sources altogether that can help you kind of get a finger on the pulse. Yeah, right. Well, I'm hoping that this as well is going to be a useful way for people to get their finger on the pulse on how recent changes to Twitter are sort of affecting science. But I think that's all we've got time for this time on Nature's Take. 
We'll be back with another episode in the near future. But for now, all that's left to do is to thank you all once again for joining me. Thanks, Nick. Thank you you so much, Nick. This was great. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.